Welcome everyone to our AdDot podcast. I have a very popular uh, software architect with me today, Simon Brown. It's a real pleasure to have you, Simon. You're welcome. Thanks so much for inviting me along. Simon and I met some years ago. I'm going to say it was probably close to eight years ago or something. Uh, we were both at a conference in Berlin. And I think in some for some strange reason, we haven't run into each other since. And I regret that, but it's nice to uh, kind of see you on camera anyway today. Yeah, yeah. The whole pandemic thing hasn't helped. I'm yeah. sure we would have crossed paths at some point sooner. Yeah. So I interviewed, um, uh, I guess, uh, maybe a colleague of yours, uh, Owen Woods, um, some months ago. And Owen uh, talked about, you know, he, you're one of the people that he follows actively and uh, learns from you. And I asked him, so when, when you and Simon get together, do you surf out to Jersey or does Simon surf into London? So surfing is a big part of your life, right? Yeah, I mean, I I live in Jersey in the Channel Islands and I, I was born here. That's that's the reason I live here now. But I I worked in London for about 12 years. And when you've got those really hot summer months in the middle of London, it's, you know, there's no sea breeze. And I I, I did kind of miss the sea. So, yeah, we, we moved back here as a family in 2008. And I actually only took up surfing, I think, like five or six years ago, I'm going to say, maybe seven. Um, my wife bought us a family surf lesson. I think it's for, for our anniversary or something like that. And, uh, yeah, just got hooked after that. So, yeah, surfing's fun. I mean, we, we've got the sea all around us. Yeah. The sea's not too cold. It gets up to 17 degrees Celsius in the summer and down to about seven or eight, which is chilly, but it's not super cold. So yeah, we can we can surf all year round. But, but surfing to London's quite far. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, that sounds like wetsuit territory um, or dry suit or something. It's, it's wetsuit territory, I'm going to say, for about 10 months of the year. So in the height of the summer, uh, kind of August, September, you can get away with board shorts and a, and a thin top. But yeah, for the rest of the year, I mean, now it's it's definitely wetsuit temperature. Yeah, cool. Well, I think it's interesting for people to learn uh, the interests of, um, you know, kind of uh, architecture, software leadership people and that we're all just human. And I can't surf here in Arizona, um, not not like you can, but... We do go out to San Diego a couple times a year uh, for vacationing, and I could surf there. And actually, I boogie board there. I'm uh, I've I've tried wind sailing, and I'll tell you that it is a difficult task to balance on a board. So yeah, it's it's all hard. It's all hard. <laughs> I guess I guess the only downside with uh, California is sharks. Are there sharks down in San Diego? Oh, there are sharks. In fact, uh, <laughs> I think one woman got chomped some years ago in a triathlon. Yeah, and they packed, you know, a bunch of people swimming and one shark picked her out. And yeah, so tragedy. Yes, Blimey. there are sharks. So um, anyway, yeah, I'm not that anxious about getting in the water there. <laughs> Plus, it's really cold all the time doesn't really ever get warm. So anyway, let's talk about software. So here's Simon Brown. He's um, made 
software architecture more interesting to programmers? And what kind of gave you that idea? So when I worked in London, I used to work for mostly small consulting companies. And in order to grow a consulting company, you need to grow more teams uh, so you can service more customers. And I ended up part, I, I, I ended up being part of the team who would train our software developers to move into tech lead and architect positions so they could go uh, do the tech lead role for our customers. And, and that's really how I got into kind of teaching people about software architecture. And I, I used to run some internal training for the company, and then I took that internal training kind of outside. And after a while of kind of teaching the basics around software architecture, I realized that many people had completely the wrong perspective of it. They thought it was very boring, very kind of heavyweight enterprise driven. It was all about beating on up front and it wasn't compatible with agile approaches. And, and I just wanted to say, no, hang on a second. You need to stop back. You need to consider that this, this is really about fundamentals. And I wanted to find a way to really teach it to the people who needed to know about it the most, which in in my eyes, were software developers. So that's where my whole software architecture for developers kind of tag came from. It was it was really about teaching the primary audience um, about all that stuff, really. Yeah, neat. Um, so a grassroots effort, and I have a feeling that you're kind of a visual thinker. Do you learn visually quite well yeah. yourself? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, if, if I look back to the projects I've worked on in London, a bunch of times I would be the person at the whiteboard sketching out ideas, trying to draw some visuals, you know, if, if it was software architecture or not, but just drawing visuals so that everybody within the same room could understand the thing we were talking about. And yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of visuals relating to software architecture, hence the, the C4 model diagramming stuff, of course. Right. So um, let's talk a little bit about C4. And as I understand it, um, I mean, I, I have, you know, looked into it. I have not used the structurizer tool that's uh, quite popular, but um, as I understand, it's kind of based on the older um, Philippe Kirchen's uh, four plus one views of architecture. Yeah. So back when I, back when I started uh, working professionally as a software developer, so I graduated in 1996, that'll, that'll date me, unfortunately. And the first training course I ever went on was like a, a five-day UML with, I think it was the Select Enterprise Tooling. And I was a big UML fan and a big UML proponent for probably the first decade of my career. You know, all the documentation diagrams we were doing was UML. And it was actually quite useful. And lots of our customers were using UML and they were using Rational Rows and Rational Software Architects and, and, and all of those kind of big heavyweight enterprise uh, type tools. And... When something like the Rational Unified Process came along, uh, the Rational Unified Process did give you a, um, well, I mean, it, RUP is like a huge process framework. And of course, teams should never have done all of it, but many teams did try and do all of it. But RUP would give you a set of recommended artifacts and recommended diagrams that you would use to diagram your software, of course. And... I tried to follow the same type of approaches even when I wasn't using UML. So, of course, when Agile came along in the early 2000s, a lot of teams 
almost instantly ditched UML because they thought it was a part of Agile and they somehow coupled UML along with Big Design up front. And, and there's a whole bunch of other reasons why people kind of didn't want to use UML so much. But the underlying concepts were kind of sound. And yeah, Philip Christian's 4 plus 1 approach uh, is, is basically, for anybody who, who doesn't really know what 4 plus 1 is about, it's, it's about documenting and diagramming your software from four different angles. So there's a, a kind of high-level logical view. There's um, a mapping of that to code. That's the development view. There's a process view that talks about concurrency and parallelism. And then there's a deployment view that talks about infrastructure and deployment topologies. And just that way of thinking, just that way of saying, we can't put everything into a single picture, so let's not try. Let's have different diagrams to uh, look at our software from different perspectives. Of course, this was um, the heart of Owen's book as well, uh, in in uh, his and Nick Brzezanski's viewpoints and perspectives approach. So yeah, I was, I was a big fan of this, let's look at our software from different angles. I guess the variation I've put onto 4 plus 1 is I've kind of merged together the logical and the development views um, and made that into a hierarchy of different levels of abstraction. But yeah, it's, it's based on the same kind of premise. Yeah, and I think the plus one, and I did use um, uh, four plus one and and RUP, but yes, I am one who recognized RUP as quite a, a heavyweight process. And I, yeah. I actually created a subset of it that I named Quantum Ray. And since you've never heard of Quantum Ray, it didn't go very far, <laughs> but it was really <laughs> right. within within a consulting company I was working with at the time because we were, you know, trying to figure out process. And I said, "Well, Rup makes sense, but uh, we just don't want to foist this onto clients. So how could we scale it down?" So I did that and gave it a name. Anyway, um, the plus one is the use case, right? So yeah, I think right. it recognizes that you can't really have an architecture until you understand the use cases. So what are the use cases that sort of pin the architecture mechanisms and so forth and the, and the shape of uh, the architecture to something reasonable? Yeah, yeah, correct. And it's, it, it's funny, 4 plus 1, a lot of people have never come across 4 plus, 4 plus 1, which kind of surprised me. It's, it's one of the questions that I always ask during my workshops and again, people kind of know the underlying concepts about looking at your software from different angles, but they've not seen the four plus four plus one version of it. Um, never really answered why that was, to be honest. But yeah, the, the the plus one is is about bringing this all together with, you know, what's our system doing? You know, use cases, use cases and scenarios. Yeah, well, I think the author was not so much a uh, salesperson as he was a, a scientist, so to speak, and. I think he's now a, a, a professor somewhere, right? Mm. Uh, yeah, Vancouver, I'm going to say, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah, of course, this was kind of pre-internet, wasn't it? Well, not, not, not pre-internet, but it was, it was early internet. Oh, so nice. spreading ideas back yeah. in the late 90s was a little bit more tricky, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and just to make you feel younger, my, my start into software development was 1983. So don't, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, don't, don't feel too bad about your... Uh, case here but um yeah well it's it's quite interesting and i too wonder even now a lot of um the younger ones you know i i i'm old enough i guess to to refer to them as kids because they could be my kids easily <laughs> and it, you know from the age perspective and 
And so these kids are like really rejecting patterns and things like this. And it's, and I think that they are doing so without even knowing what they're rejecting actually. And do you have any comments on that? I mean, I don't mean to disrespect anyone, but I kind of wish that, you know, before throwing a, a, a software approach under the bus, they should understand what they're throwing under the bus. Yeah, I've, I've seen the same thing, actually. I've seen people dismissing things that they don't really understand and adopting techniques. So if you look at what Agile's done over the past 20 years, Agile has kind of, it, it, was, it was created as a reaction to all of the big upfront design, upfront analysis that we were doing and those very, very long kind of feedback cycles. And of course, two decades have gone past now and many of the techniques that teams have created in rejection to that big upfront way of working are starting to become much more reminiscent of those approaches because they've been created by a bunch of people who haven't seen that stuff because they've only come into industry in, in the past kind of 10 or maybe 15 years or so. Um, yeah, we're not very good at teaching history, are we? You know, there's a whole bunch of really interesting techniques out there. So something like uh, CRC cards, Classes, Responsibilities, Collaborators. It's a super, super useful visual and collaborative workshopping technique for doing design. Of course, we don't sit in a room anymore and do class-level design, but if you take that same approach and apply it to components or maybe services and microservices, it's a great way to do a collaborative design effort. But no one's heard of it because it's kind of in that bag of older stuff that we threw away 20 years ago. And yeah, we're just not good at teaching history, and I think we should be. Conferences are to blame here, of course, because if you if you try and put a, a talk forward to a conference and talk about all the old stuff, it'll never get accepted anyway. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. And um, well, but now with the internet, maybe we should just start doing something about that and, and building a groundswell, you know, about, um, you know, sort of the the reintroduction of really wise uh, tools and techniques. And, and I think to um, one of the reasons that software is the where, where it is today is because actually software companies used to be run by tech people, right? I mean, they, they were the startup founders. I mean, if, if, you know, Bill Gates ended up being tremendously wealthy from this, but there are a lot of other people who were, who were as techy or more techy than Bill Gates and they did well too, but you know, they, they didn't um, result in, in the level of wealth that he did, but still quite wealthy but i think in general we were sort of not very good at selling things ideas and so forth they just made sense to us and and a lot of other technical people would see the ideas hear about them read about them and they would say wow this makes a lot of sense and and so they would follow them but somewhere in about the mid 90s maybe it was earlier in the 90s mbas started taking over tech companies right i mean they became the the tech founders and so forth. And while I don't have a problem with that, it does really change the perspective, unfortunately. And it becomes more about the hype around the product that we're offering than the soundness of the software, um, you know, process or, or technique that we use. Do you see that too? I guess I, I do see that, but maybe in a, it's it's manifesting itself in slightly different ways. So one of the, the 
uh, things I see teams really struggling with these days is they've got very strong product owners who are kind of driving the let's do feature, 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 feature delivery. Uh, and the teams are struggling because they're, they're accumulating technical debt in order to move so fast. And they're not being allowed time to go fix that technical debt. So yeah, similar, similar kind of outcome, but maybe for a different reason. Yeah. And in fact, uh, there was just a tweet this morning acknowledging um, my latest book with, with uh, Tomasz Jaskula, my co-author, and uh, we were determined to explain what technical debt actually means and, and why Ward Cunningham came up with the explanation for it. You know, it was just a logical way to explain um, to a business person like a concrete scenario of you keep on taking on debt, all you're doing is paying interest and don't, don't think that you can just take on debt to, to ship faster and never pay the debt, right? Yep. Never pay yep. the actual principle of, of the debt, just pay the interest. Otherwise, you know, your, your software is going to end up in a really bad place, but I think you're correct. It's the relentless sort of delivery, right? That, that is pushing, um, that kind of situation. What do you think software developers should do about that? Um, we always end up having this discussion on, on my workshops. I mean, to, to link this back to Philip Crutchard again, he's got a bunch of stuff out around uh, technical debt and categorizing technical debt and prioritizing technical debt. Uh, and he also uses uh, like a, a technical debt backlog. So he's, he's a big proponent of teams visualizing their technical debt and also categorizing it as to what type of technical debt is. And I think that's something teams need to do. They need to realize that all technical debt is, is not equal and some types of technical debt do need to be paid off earlier than others. So that's, that's kind of one of the main things. Teams still struggle with that though because it, it's kind of hard to admit to non-technical people that you've built up a bunch of debt and... It kind of raises questions, doesn't it? You know, we as a team have built this whole bunch of stuff, and it has a bunch of tech, uh, um, a bunch of technical debt associated with it, and th and that will get some questions raised, like why did you let it get to that state? And the answer is, well, because you were pushing us to move so fast. Something else I've I've seen teams do, um, and this is something Scott Ambler suggested a while back, is he says, so if you've got a particularly um, I'm, I'm lost for words here, but if you've got a particularly pushy product owner and the product people think that they are above the technical people, maybe what you do is you rebrand your tech lead and your principal engineers and your architects to be called architecture owners because then you've got the architecture owner looking after the technical stuff and the product owner looking after the product vision and roadmap stuff. And then it, it kind of allows these two groups of people to be seen as peers and then maybe they can have better discussions about prioritizing both the product features and the technical debts, you know, the, the, the stuff that ends up being on both backlogs, for example. So yeah, different, different approaches I've seen teams use to solve that type of problem, but it's, it's hard in the real world when deadlines are there and businesses want to move fast and make money. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I guess to go a little further down the rabbit trail, I've a uh, few different clients recently have just, prided themselves in, in killing they, and they say it like this, killing the PMO, right? They're, 
they're just uh, really happy to kind of get rid of that, um, I don't know, boss, not a boss, or something, someone who influences them to, to sort of, or is even empowered to force them to do things that they know is kind of negative practice. Um, and these are big companies, right? I'm not talking about like, yeah. like, you know, little startup shops, which wouldn't have a PMO anyway. Um, so anyway, I, you know, I just think it's interesting the kind of backlash that's happening between what I would call, I guess, you know, real agile or the agile promoted by the agile manifesto, which I think today people say little, you know, lowercase agile versus the, uh, initial uppercase agile, capital A agile. And I, I don't so much get into that, you know, sort of thing, but to me, it just seems strange to put, to, to put all this ceremony and complexity into something that just isn't that hard to do. You know, if you, what do you say? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really funny during the initial decade after the agile manifesto was created, I saw lots of people creating tools and techniques and practices that were basically mirroring the stuff we did before that, but they were they were agile tools because they did it in a in a, a slightly different way. But ultimately, when you picked that apart, it was still the same stuff they were kind of recreating from days gone by. So, yeah, I've 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 definitely seen some of that. I guess on the flip side, you see lots of people now just kind of cargo culting Scrum. They they do their backlogs. They have the religious meeting every morning. You know what have you done? What what etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Those those three questions, never any variation on the theme, and yeah, I guess a lot of teams kind of miss the point. Yeah. I have seen lots of teams who who are claiming to be agile, but they're, they're literally just doing it by the book, and they're not thinking, does is this the best approach for us, and and how can we improve the way that we work? Yeah, and that's kind of tragic, isn't it? Yeah, and and I think we've okay, so we've gone down this. Uh, we've we've. Uh, grown the stack quite a bit. I think long JMP would be better than, than, than just unwinding the stack through returns. So let's just <laughs> long jump back to, okay. So here, here we are at, uh, C4 great technique based on sound principles, uh, from, from past practices. And then you come up with the, what I would consider kind of this genius, you know, approach of saying, how could I get programmers to be interested in architecture? Why not let them code their architecture? Is it something like that? Yeah. So um, let me let me kind of backtrack for, for a second. So the the C four model for those of you who don't know what this is, it's a it's a hierarchical set of abstractions that you can use to describe software architecture and building blocks in software architecture and a corresponding set of hierarchical diagrams that you use to basically describe those uh, levels of abstraction. So the levels of, of abstraction are software systems. Inside a software system is a bunch of containers, not not Docker. There's an unfortunate clashing name in there. You, you can ask me about that later. But by containers, I basically mean applications and data stores. If you look inside things like applications, they're made up of components. And if you look inside components, they're basically made up of code level elements. And the corresponding diagrams are a system context diagram, which shows the system you are describing and the world around it, by which I mean people and other software systems. Then you zoom into the system boundary to draw a container diagram, which shows you your applications and data stores and how they interact, and then then so on and so on. 
So now we've kind of painted the picture of what the C4 model is um, at a very high level. If you want to draw a system context diagram, you're going to have a box in the middle representing your system and a bunch of other boxes around it representing uh, your user types and the systems that you integrate with. And that's all good and it's fairly easy to put together. When you want to go and draw a container diagram, all you're doing is you're basically pinching to zoom inside that software system and you're drawing the containers inside that software system boundary. Now, the outside of the diagram, the people and the other software systems that you integrate with, they're basically the same elements as on the system context diagram. So if you try to draw these diagrams in a tool like Visio, you literally have to copy paste elements from one Visio tab, one Visio diagram to the next, and you get this whole um, you know, breach of dry, don't repeat yourself, because we literally are repeating ourselves across every diagram. If you if you've only got two diagrams, that's not so much of an issue. But imagine you have, you have a whole collection of diagrams. Uh, now this copy paste duplications start to become a pain. So I wanted to solve all of this, and I wanted to to get back to the concept of doing modeling. Now, unfortunately, whenever I mention the word modeling, people go no because they they kind of associate with UML and big design front and that sort of thing. But the concept of a model is actually very, very straightforward. It's just a dictionary of things like elements and relationships. So all you're doing here is you're crafting up a model consisting of your systems and your people, for example, and how they link to one another. And then you're reusing those elements or reusing those links across multiple diagrams, multiple views. And again, that, that's what brings us back to the, the kind of Philip Christian 4 plus 1 model. So I'm running my C4 model training courses for like eight or 10 years or so. And, and people were asking me, what tooling do you recommend? And up until that point, I just said, well, use Visio. It's basically fine. You're just drawing boxes and arrows and having a, a, a key or a legend to describe your notation. And that was kind of okay for a while, but it, it, it bugged me. Right? Something about recommending Visio to draw architecture diagrams bugged me. So about, I'm going to say five years ago, I wanted to address the tooling issue. And I started building uh, a web uh, a web-based, browser-based modeling tool. So you could open up a web browser, you get a page, and you'd enter in a, a rather nasty-looking HTML form all of your software systems and people and, and their relationships, and there was some, some kind of UI to do that. And, and that was my initial attempt at this tooling problem. But I soon discovered that the UI and the UX was just appalling. It was the worst tool in the world to actually use. So I, I binned the UI, but... Behind the scenes on the server side, there was a little Java library that I put together, which is now called Structurizer for Java. And all it would do is it would take input from the web UI and basically craft up an object model on the server side of software systems talking to software systems and people talking to software systems. And it kind of occurred to me, hang on a second, that's a really nice way for people to craft up a model. They can just write code. So the initial version of the Java tooling and the majority of, the, of this is open source. It's all on GitHub. The initial version of the Java tooling was literally a Java class library that you'd had added dependency on, and then you could craft up a public static void main application and, and literally just do you know new software system X, new person Y, Y.users X, for example. And you'd kind of think that developers would love that, and it turns out they didn't. Because... Well, <laughs> You know, a bunch of people did like the fact that we could craft up some code and we'd create a model and we could generate multiple views of that consistent model and it was all great and it was all quite lightweight. 
But a bunch of people said, hang on a second, why on earth are we having to write more code just to get diagrams? And it was, um, it was an idea that a lot of people didn't like and, and actually still don't like to this day. So five years goes past, I'm kind of adding things and making it easier to use and, and all the rest of it. And, and now there are ports for .NET and TypeScript and PHP and Python. So, you know, other, other people do like this concept. But when we had this lockdown thing happen last year, I'm like, right, I, I need to figure out how do I make a better UI for this? And I came up with something called the Structurizer DSL. And it's a really simple text-based domain-specific language that's very, very targeted at creating the same models uh, but using a, a nice kind of domain-focused language. So it, you open up a text file and you literally do software system space name, uh, person space name, uh, and then you, there's like a little arrow operator. So it's, it's, like, a, it's like a kind of pseudo-programming language uh, slash domain-specific language. And that's really just a wrapper around the original Structurizer for Java library. And all that does it when it's parsed is it basically creates that same object model that the um, the, the older version of the library did. And that's actually taken off um, more than I expected. So I created the first version, I think, in May or June last year. And that's become a lot more popular than the uh, Structurizer for Java, the, the code-driven library. What was funny earlier this year is, is now people are kind of getting into this and they're using the text-based DSL. And then like, well, the text-based DSL doesn't quite do this funny thing I want to do. And like, ah, do you know what? Because it's based on code, you can actually call out. So I, I added scripting support to the DSL. So now you can write your architecture models in text, and then you can have a little like Groovy or Kotlin script, which calls back out, and you have access to the full underlying structurizer for Java library. So yeah, I've, I've kind of uh, christened this diagrams as code too. So it's a it's a model-focused, domain-focused approach to creating software architecture models and, and diagrams. It's kind of super lightweight. It's got a bunch of rules in there. Uh, it's got some meta, uh, some some metadata and, and some meta models. And there's a whole bunch of kind of convention stuff that goes on. And it's actually relatively straightforward to craft up quite a big software architecture model uh, from a relatively straightforward DSL um, starting point. So yeah, so that's that's my journey through the tooling and trying to make it attractive to developers. And of course, because it's it's code-focused and text-focused, people are now hooking this into their CI, CD process and their build process, and they're figuring out how to automatically parse other data sources and craft up um, parts of their model based upon, you know, real things that live in that production system. So, yeah, there's a whole world, a whole, whole world of stuff out there now. Yeah, interesting, because I guess your road to success or becoming more successful with this is, is hasn't been quite as smooth as I, smooth as I had imagined. Well, envisioned because everybody that I talk to, even guys on my team, right, and I say, um, "Hey, do you have any experience with Structurizer?" Oh, yes, I love Structurizer, and <laughs> nice. and and actually, and actually, I think none of them had experience with the DSL either maybe right, so maybe one of them yeah so um my impression from talking to numerous people is like wow this is huge but but the fact that it's becoming more popular through the dsl that's excellent very very good vision to to follow so feedback loop right nice yeah yeah exactly one and, of them Sorry. One of Go the on. other big things we've done over the past, well, we, I, one, one of the other big things I've done in the past year is I, I've made the separation between authoring a model and rendering a model um, much, much more apparent. So you can use the DSL to craft up your model and 
the definitions of the views and the views ultimately get rendered in diagrams. Uh, but you can use a, a multitude of tooling to actually render those views. So I have uh, my own tooling called Structurizer, uh, and that's available in um, free and, and paid versions. But there's also a bunch of exporters to things like PlantUML and Mermaid. So now what you've got the ability to do is you can craft up a model, define a bunch of views in that model, and then export the views to something like PlantUML, and then you can use your regular PlantUML toolchain. So yeah, there's, there's a really nice separation now between model authoring and um, diagram rendering. Uh, which is something that we've not seen before. Yeah, good. So they can, and this visualization tool or rendering tool is uh, structurizer.com. Is that it? Yes. Yeah. So uh, there are there are various different versions. Uh, so there's a structurizer.com, which is the initial version I created, and that's a a web based browser based um, kind of in browser JavaScript uh, driven rendering engine. So there's a a free cloud service, there's a paid cloud service, there's a paid on-premises installation, and there's now, this is something I introduced this summer, uh, there's a free light version, which is basically a Docker container. Uh, so it's hosted on, on Docker Hub. You just do a, a kind of a Docker pull structurizer light. You point it at a folder containing your DSL representation. You start the Docker image up, uh, create the container, and then it gives you the same rendering engine in browser. So that's really nice way for developers to author models, um, maybe for, pub for publication to the cloud service or the on-premises install. Um, but it's actually useful standalone for people who just want diagrams. You know, They can check in their DSL and their supplementary documentation source code control, along with the commands to start Structurize Lite. It, it, it's, it's all free, no license required. And then anybody on the team can spin up a Docker container and view those diagrams in the same way that every, every else, everybody else will view them. So yeah, lots and lots of tooling out there now. Good. Um, so you, you have a container that holds several containers. I know. One of those containers it's is very, Docker uh, in it. Yeah, I know. And I am the container I, manager, of course. Yes, yes. <laughs> Good. So many containers. Um, all right. So how do you see teams using this today? Like what, what kind of problems are they solving or who has interest in, in viewing the diagrams? Like why would, why would a team, you know, go into this uh, use of it? Do you have, do they have management looking at it? Maybe even executives are interested in seeing how their system works. Does it give people a good feeling? Um, I mean, it, it hopefully gives people a good feeling. So why are people looking at these diagrams? Again, I guess we need to backtrack it a little bit here. When the Agile Manifesto came out, although the Agile Manifesto doesn't say don't write documentation and don't draw diagrams, a lot of people misunderstood that and misinterpreted those words uh, in the manifesto. And I've literally seen and still see teams today who have, I'm not kidding, like no diagrams and no documentation for the systems that they are currently working on and building. And, and, and so this is one of the reasons that I do a lot of my software architecture and my, my C4 model workshops. It's to, is to teach people how to do, how to create lightweight architecture diagrams that reflect reality. So they're not kind of just made up high level conceptual views of the world uh, that are meaningless to everybody. So this is about how do I craft up a bunch of diagrams, lightweight diagrams in, in a quick and efficient way that makes sense to a wide range of audiences. That's one of the nice things about the C4 model, the different diagrams allow you to tell different stories to different audiences. 
And something we do in the workshops is we get people to craft up a context and a container diagram for either a little kind of case study that I have, or we get them to do it for their real systems. And what's really interesting is when the teams do this exercise against their real systems, they end up at the end of like three hours. They they end up at the end of this three-hour period with a couple of diagrams reflecting what this system actually looks like, albeit at a high level. And for many people, that's sufficient. They kind of take some photos and stick it on Confluence. But of course, you can't edit and update those photos. And that's where the tooling comes into play. So I see teams who are crafting up things like the Structurizer DSL definition to represent and to document their existing systems. This isn't really a design tool. So for, for doing software design and, and brainstorming exercises and stuff like that, I'm a big fan of whiteboards and pieces of paper. You know, it's a much more collaborative kind of free format approach. But yeah, it's mostly people who are creating documentation and diagrams where nothing exists currently. And they've kind of been to my workshop. And, and one of the things I get people to do in my workshop is use paper. And again, because we've got the copy-paste thing, so you're copying people and software systems across sheets of paper, it's really, really tedious. And, and, and the exercise makes it tedious because they're, they're having to copy all of the text and all of the notation and, and all of the shapes and the colors across from one piece of paper to the next. And, and, and of course, the question is, well, what tooling do you recommend? I'm like, aha, guess why I have this whole ba- this modeling tool uh, that will allow you to craft up these diagrams really quickly. And in some of the workshops, um, I actually do a demo. So we take a, a solution that the teams put together and say, look, this is how quickly you can craft this up in the Structurizer DSL tooling. And it's like a five-minute job. And once they see that, they're kind of hooked. So it's it's that sort of use. It's, it's for long-lived documentation. It's mostly for kind of this is how my uh, system works. It's mostly for kind of people creating software architecture documents or using Arc42 or maybe my software guidebook template. So it's for new joiners. It's for people supporting systems. It's for maintenance uses. It's also good for uh, doing like large-scale refactorings. So one of the things I noticed over the years is that, is that teams struggle with large-scale refactorings. And it's not because they don't know what they're doing. It's because they don't know what they're changing and how, and therefore how they want to change that thing. So yeah, if, if teams have a good set of diagrams that do reflect reality, they can then use those diagrams during their uh, retrospectives and their planning meetings to say, right, this is what we've got. This is the, the messy bit down here, and this is how we want to change it. So they can do like a, a current state, future state kind of analysis comparison. Um, so yeah, those are the, the major uses. It's, it's primarily used by the teams themselves, uh, developers on the teams, architects on the teams. But yeah, also I've seen people using the same diagrams for doing threat modeling. Uh, so stride reviews, um, and risk identification. So I, I have a concept called risk storming that's based on, on the same uh, kind of diagram. So yeah, lots and lots of uses for these types of diagrams. Nice. And uh, I suppose that when you say um, identifying legacy systems that are being sort of transformed, um, you're probably talking about the big ball of mud monolith uh, kind of thing to <laughs> microservices is not just about everybody doing that these days. Yeah, uh, yes, unfortunately, um, I do see a lot of teams. You, you, you must do the same. Uh, you know, they, they tell me the same story. Like we have this ten slash fifteen slash twenty year old Java air quote legacy application, 
and it's a horrible mess. It's a big ball of mud, and, and it's hard to change and brittle, and we can't add features quickly, and people are moaning at us, and we've got lots of technical debt. So we think the best approach is to rewrite it as a set of services. And, of course, on, on the face of it, that doesn't sound unsensible, I guess. Um, there's, there's a lot of benefits of microservices architectures, especially if you start um, uh, leveraging things like Conway's Law, of course, where you've got separate ownership of separate services across separate teams. Unfortunately, what happens in the real world, and, and again, I'm sure you've seen this yourself, is the teams take their existing design thinking and their design approaches, and they basically just stick synchronous JSON over HTTPS interfaces between things that are poorly modularized in a monolith, and they get a distributed version of the mess they had before, which is now even more brittle and more fragile and needs lockstep deployment. Uh, so one of the interesting things about the C4 model diagrams, uh, especially the container diagram, is... When people are doing my design exercise, sometimes you'll see monolithic approaches, like a couple of applications talking to database, and you get a nice, simple diagram. Other times you'll see groups adopt like a serverless or microservices-based architectural style for the uh, the design of the risk system. And then they've not got three boxes. They might have like 12 or 20 or maybe 25 boxes on the diagram. And the immediate question that pops up from these groups is, well, I've got lots of boxes on my diagram how can I make the diagram easier? And the answer is simplify your solution. You've got a complicated solution. You've gone too far. You know, there's no need to split this thing up into all of these separate things. So perhaps go for something simpler, maybe, you know, stick everything or stick, stick the majority of the functionality in the monolith and maybe have some services where it's it's more useful, maybe more volatile. So yeah, again, it comes back to diagrams. If you have a set of diagrams that reflect your reality, you can use those diagrams as a feedback loop. You know, does this look complicated? If the answer is yes, maybe it is too complicated. Yeah, and this is a point that we um, try to reinforce in in our new book, uh, Strategic Monoliths and Microservices. And the idea is that um, monoliths are not bad. It's just the big ball of mud that's bad, and that reflects not paying your debt. So start paying your debt as soon as you can. And if you're already in the big ball of mud, then here are some ways to, uh, you know, you could call it refactor. Maybe it's more like redesign depending on, um, I, I think it's, I think it's, you know, a myriad of different, um, refactorings, right? It's, it, it's trying to introduce tests where there weren't tests and, and so forth. And then we have a technique called, um, event surfacing where, you know, introducing events where events are implicit, you know, the, we, we want to think that there's an event, but that there's just not one there. How do you now make it explicit? So we talked through some ways about doing that, but yeah, I, I think that, um, by and large, well, it's hard to say. I have a variety of different kinds of clients as you do, and some of them really should use microservices. Others just really shouldn't be using microservices. And and I think both of them can actually, unfortunately, end up in a bad place. Both the, you know, the, the ones who are justifiably using it, and of course, the ones who shouldn't be using it find even more pain early, probably because they can't even sort of orchestrate all these things in a deployment very well. Right. Yeah. 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 Once you, once you start getting into to distributed architectures, You've got a lot more stuff to think about, and, and people just don't get that. Yeah. So, introduce the the network and bingo. You know, you've hit the uh, sort of complexity jackpot, and 
and especially if you're not really used to dealing with that before. So, and I, and certainly the visualization tools that you've provided are going to help people see if it looks complex and it smells complex and it, you know, <laughs> and it walks complex. Well, it's probably complex. So simplify. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah. The, <laughs> The other thing about the diagrams is is if, if you get a team to create a diagram based upon their real system, you can challenge them to make sure it's accurate. So I, I ran a workshop once and I asked a team to create me a components level diagram for the uh, ASP.NET application that they were building. And it was a, a kind of classic bunch of components organized in layers. And when they drew this diagram, the diagram they drew was a bunch of components organized in layers. And all of the arrows were going down. It was like the most beautiful, perfect, strictly layered architecture you've ever seen. And I kind of looked at this diagram puzzled, and I thought, no, I, I, I'm sorry, I just don't believe you. So I said to, to the group, can we look in the code and actually look for these relationships? Because I've never seen a diagram this nice before. And we did this exercise for like half an hour, and we kind of compared the diagram with um, their code in Visual Studio. And we drew all of the extra arrows that they'd missed. And guess what? Once we drew all the extra arrows, the arrows went upwards and downwards and left and right, and they skipped layers. And, and when the group saw this uh, redrawn diagram after like 30 minutes, a bunch of them stood around and said, oh, I didn't notice that. And it turns out when they'd been making some change to some component, other stuff in the system would break. And they never really knew why because they didn't think these two things were coupled and connected, but it turns out they were when they drew the diagram. So yeah, it's a really nice way to kind of force people to to reflect on what reality looks like. And of course, then you can start to make good architectural decisions. Cool. So anything in the future we should, you know, that you can talk about, like any sort of product goals you have, um, realizing new uh, innovation or anything like that, or just initiatives that you would like to have with clients, anything like that? Uh, so what's, what's in my future? Hopefully more traveling. Uh, the traveling has been a bit quiet for the past 18 months. I've I finally started to, to get back into doing some traveling. Uh, but no, from, from my perspective, I've, I've been putting a lot of effort and work into the Structurizer tooling and the DSL. And that's got to a point now where it's being picked up. People are using it. We've kind of uh, ironed out some of the rough edges. So I, I, I really want to do more... Um, more speaking about that, um, more kind of showcasing what you can do with that tooling. And a lot of people, I think, dismissed my Structurizer tooling a couple of years ago because it was always available as like a, a free and paid cloud service and a kind of paid on-premises installation. And many people saw the paid part and just said, no, that's not for me at all. So now I've got the Structurizer Lite thing and it's free. It's a, it's a Docker container and it, it's like a, a single command just to spin up. Um, I... I think that opens the door to lots more people using it. So, yeah, I've I've just started speaking at conferences again, and I, I have a new talk called Diagrams as Code 2.0, where we go through this whole thing about, um, you know, the mess we got into and existing approaches like Palantir, Merlin, Mermaid, and, and how the Structurizer DSL uh, kind of helps teams solve that. So that's that's really what's next in, in, in my future. Good. I hope we can start traveling again. I mean, I have enjoyed uh, being home. I, I did travel extensively before, and it and <laughs> yes. uh, it literally went. Actually, you know, when I when I first uh, when we went into lockdown, I was just sort of listening to everybody else and 
um, trying to figure out what was going on. And somehow everybody thought this was just going to disappear after three months, you know, just sort of like, poof, yeah, yeah, me too. Gone. And I thought, wow, three months at home, that would be really good, you know? <laughs> and, and, uh, here we are at like 20 months, I think by now where, where we've been home and, uh, yeah, I actually, have you been able to do some like training online? I imagine you've been doing virtual workshops. Or maybe not so. Yes. Um, so, but but only this year, really. So, uh, when when all the uh, lockdowns and pandemic started happening last March, April time, uh, literally all all of my workshops were just cancelled and postponed for the entirety of last year. So last year, I did a lot of surfing, and uh, and not much else apart from putting the, the structurized DSL together. This year, I've I, I have done some remote stuff. Um, I've come up with an asynchronous version of my C four uh, modeling workshop. And I've been doing some uh, synchronous kind of webinar-based things. I've, I've taken my two-day workshop and split it across three mornings or three afternoons uh, just because I, I think that's a, a much more easier-to-grasp um, kind of set of time periods rather than sitting in front of a computer for, for two solid days, which is not something I want to do particularly. But it's, it, it, it's been tough because you do miss a lot of the interaction. I've, I've had some fabulous uh, synchronous workshops where everyone's had their camera on and it's been very interactive and people have been kind of asking questions whenever they want to. And I've had a few workshops where I've literally been speaking to 12 or 15 black boxes and there's no interaction and there's no cameras and half the people are out like on their phones and walking their dogs and, and stuff like that. And it's just a very different experience. Yeah. And I've been there. I mean, I, the exact same thing happened to me. I, uh, 2020, you know, March of 2020 people start like, well, maybe we aren't going to do this this month and maybe we'll postpone. And, and it ended up just cascading into every single event that I had planned for the remainder of 2020 was just canceled. And, and, uh, but for me, things started, um, uh, going virtual in September of 2020. And, uh, I've been pretty busy virtually ever since. And, and, uh, so I'm glad you're you're getting um, in pace. It is really, I think it m- probably is a better experience um, to be on premise with people, um, but at the same time, it's really convenient to for people not to have to you know come to a central location. And we're getting now a lot more virtual teams in itself, right? Where yeah, people are you know they don't have to fly. 15 people from different offices around the country or the, or, or whatever the, the, um, continent. And so from that perspective, it's a little nicer, but, um, I, I do look forward to being in person again, but I'll tell you, like you said, you know, before the podcast began, the recording began, you're, you're saying, yeah, I've been able to travel three times, which is great. But then every place I've been is getting, you know, the, the serious, um, kind of whatever it's called, like, uh, yeah, you tell me the word. Yeah. What did you, word did uh, the, um, the, the case numbers are going up. They're increasing. Yeah. 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 Different variants and things. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of open at the moment, but, but I guess the question is how long is it actually open? So I've, I, I've got on-premise workshops booked for next month in January and February. Will those go ahead? Who knows? I guess we'll have to wait and see. Depends all the winter yeah. holds in store. Well, I hope whatever happens is the best for you. That's the. That's <laughs> Thank you, me too. And, yeah, <laughs> um, 
And I, you know, we did lose a friend. And I don't know if you knew uh, Jan Stenberg from Sweden. Um, yeah, he went to the Yukon in, in London in, in, in uh, I guess it was early March of 2020. And he was dead like a month later. It's just shocking. Oh, I had, wow. had dinner oh, with him a few months before. And uh, yeah, so it's not worth that. It's not worth that. No. And, and certainly no one was prepared that early for the consequences of, you know, I mean, I remember saying in, in early February, come on, more people die of the flu than, you know, who's, who's worried about it. And, you know, a month later, I'm like, I'm not leaving my house. So, you know, a lot of things happened at that time, but we're really happy that you and your family have been safe and that you're, you are uh, able to do a bit of travel now. And hopefully that, um, picks up but wear your masks people right i mean that is yeah, really yeah, definitely a key to it i i totally believe it and we wear masks all around whenever we go out here so please <laughs> wear your masks and make it easier for us to to stay in circulation with one another uh, one another we need human interaction right so yeah 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 indeed thank you thank you simon so much and are there any parting uh thoughts that you have that um you know, I, I just wanted to thank you for taking time. I know you're quite busy, and so look forward to new things from you in the future. Hey, welcome. Yeah, thanks Thanks very much for having me. Uh, if people want to find out more, go to c4model.com. Uh, that's probably the, the place I'd point people to, to to discover more, and that's going to gateway into the C4 model and diagramming and tooling and, and all of my other stuff as well. Yes, definitely do that, uh, c4model.com. And we'll have that information on uh, the podcast kind of um, little blurb that we have on you. So, okay, Simon, take care, and we'll hope to see you soon someday. Indeed. Thanks very much. Cheers. If you enjoyed this interview, please subscribe and stay tuned for more. This podcast is sponsored and produced by Kalele makers of Domo Roboto and the Zoom platform. To learn more, visit kalele.io. That's K-A-L-E-L-E dot I-O. Thanks for listening.